You are listening to Revenue Machine, the podcast dedicated to revenue management in car rental. We have created it to enhance your genuine zone. I'm Emmanuel Scuto, the founder and CEO of WeYield and a revenue machinist. My ambition is to give knowledge and share experience in order to get inspiration. To do what? To reach a new level of performance, but also to have a better clarity and more freedom in the way you do your job every day. So, um, so that's a bit strange for me because it's a, <laughs> it's the first pod- podcast I'm uh, recording now. It's the first interview podcast. So, uh, and we are in the uh, in the office of uh, of Wheeled in Bièvre in Paris, close to Paris, and. Uh, So I have the chance to welcome uh, Michael Mayer from Right Highway, uh, from California. <laughs> And so, uh, uh, bienvenue, Michael. You're almost a Parisian now. You know, the it most most satisfying thing happened last night. Uh, my wife and and uh, daughter and I went out to dinner. And the waiter, I, I uh, said bonsoir to him. And he paused and he said, He started speaking in French. Do you want me to give you a menu in French? And we were like, No, no, no. no. And he goes, Oh, well, you said it so so convincingly. I, th- and it was the most satisfying event that I've had this whole time in in France. <laughs> so uh, so now, yes, you are in, in, in Paris. So I'm it's yeah. glad. I'm, I'm super happy to have you uh, uh, in Paris. So it's but it has been a month, no? Something yes, like that. Yes. Yes. Ah, cool. Yeah. Cool. So you have been located in downtown Paris. Yes, it's, it's been amazing. Yes, you lived like a Parisians. Yes, no, I, I not completely because I haven't learned to complain yet. <laughs> so, I've been very, very positive. The only thing I can complain about is I've only been here for four weeks, and twice there was a transit strike. <laughs> so, <laughs> and uh, if I remember, when when you arrive, you have been welcomed by your strike almost exactly the next yeah. day or something. <laughs> exactly. It was the first day to, to work in uh, in the office together, or, or yeah, I think it was the first day because it was almost impossible to get a Uber or a or a taxi scheduled because they were all consumed by the people that needed transportation because of the striking. So yeah, it was a challenge. And then well, you are not driving, so you are not uh, facing the gas issue as well, but right. most of the gas stations were stopped for a couple of days. Yeah. That was created a big uh, cataclysm uh, yeah. in, uh, in France. So, um, um, But it's been an amazing, it's been absolutely amazing. And I, I have an irrational love for France. I, I adore it. Um, I don't know if uh, if I was in a past life, not that I, I don't believe in that, but uh, you know, if, I don't know my connection, but I, I just feel it's the most wonderful country. Just the the culture, the cuisine, the architecture. It's it's just the trifecta. <laughs> And I think you're, you're uh, if I'm not mistaken, you have followed some uh, some pastry cuisine, no? Some pastry uh, yes, yes. courses. Huh? You are a fan of. Uh, Like the croissant and the other stuff. Yeah, I feel like that's emblematic of of uh, French culture. Well, it's emblematic in the sense that it's something that I could perhaps accomplish. So there's things that are more emblematic that are more sophisticated. And I love baking. So it, uh, my wife and I took a class while we were here, and uh, it was it was a pleasure. It's a joy. So yes, I, I love that. I love. Um, I love baking. I love French cuisine, and I, I love uh, trying things out. 
So it was, it was so you, you, you did a croissant, pain au chocolat, chocolate uh, right, right, uh, right, croissant. Yeah, right. And so next time will be what? Uh, I, am, I might step up my game a little bit. Actually, the interesting thing is, or to me at least, is I think I'm going to try sauces. They have classes on French sauces. And sweet or sugar? Uh, sweet or salty? No, salty. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. And I think that's something else that, that France dominates. Um, just creating a roux, creating, you know, the, the technique for, for cleaning the pan and, and, and creating the gravy out of it, the sauce out of it, uh, the wine reduction, I love it all. And it's, it, it makes the difference between a standard dish, a trivial dish, and something that uh, is, is wonderful with a, a fantastic sauce. Cool. So I think, yeah, that will be my next, my next endeavor will be a, a sauce class. I, I, I'm not a, um, a cuisine uh, um, expert, but effectively in a cuisine, I think there is a kind of, the, 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 they have a people with various jobs. You have the meat guy, you have the fish guy, you have the, and you have the sauce guy. Right. So it's when you're like the Michelin star restaurant, yeah. you always have a kind of guy which is super, super uh, dedicated and expert in the sauce. Because as you said, yes, it's something extremely uh, complex and that right. will be the, like, uh, the top of the, 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 the The, the end of the of the meal just yes. to make it like perfect yes, and, and yes. the way you you dress it or in the yeah well don't push it I don't think I can go as far as decorating so <laughs> I'm going for taste at this point I, I... <laughs> so now we are really uh, stepped in so can you introduce your, sure. your yourself yes uh, my name is Michael Meyer and uh, I am the president of Rate Highway and I have been involved in car rental for gosh. 20 years in one month now. So uh, uh, my business partner and I started Rate Highway in October of 2002. And we kind of fell backwards into it. We were in the revenue management uh, services area of hotel and um, ended up partnering with TravelClick, sold our technology to TravelClick, And then we were freed up and from, from that and had a non-compete at the same time. So we couldn't operate in, in the hotel space. And we said, well, airlines have already got this conquered. Hotel, we can't touch now. We're, we're barred from that. And what would be the next step? So we looked around and, and car rental seemed like the next logical thing. It's a classic example of you probably wouldn't do something if you knew enough about it. I thought it was simple. I thought it, it would be just like hotel and how, how, how hard could it be? Much like all the people who, are, who buy car rental operations or who, who get into franchises, they, they have no idea what they're getting into. So my, part, my business partner and I started Rate Highway and it was, it's been a learning experience ever since. And I have to be honest with you, Emmanuel, that that's one of the things I love about this. I love software. And I love learning about other businesses. I love understanding the problems and the challenges that other people are taking on because, um, and this may make me a bad part, a, a poor partner for my wife, but I like going instantly to problem solving instead of listening. Less listening, more problem solving. So I'm on a journey, a life journey to listen, 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 then act. So. <laughs> and um, so... If we, so first I would like to congratulate because 20 years, 
uh, it's something uh, big. It's a big achievement. To, uh, Thank you. Uh, I'm an entrepreneur also, and uh, I totally um, understand how difficult, how much energy it needs, how much failure and difficulties you certainly went through. So we're going to discuss about it. Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> if we go backwards, yes. Um, so you are 50 plus. So, yeah. And um, what? How did you enter in this uh, in this hotel uh, business? Okay. I mean, what what was I don't know your your studies maybe for the community it could be interesting to understand what was uh, what 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 makes Michael today, right? <laughs> and and what I've been doing I don't know how how was your 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 teenage and uh, your your graduation? Uh, can you give us a little bit more sure, about sure, that? Sure, sure, sure. Um, I'll give you a, a background of steps not to take. Um, so uh, I was in high school in the 80s. And um, in my household, things were not, uh, not the ha- it wasn't the happiest household. My, my parents were going through a divorce. It was actually the second divorce that, that my family was going through. So I don't know if I acted out or something, but I, I did a lot of self-sabotage. Uh, in high school. So I didn't position myself well for college. I knew I liked computers. And, and the, the pivotal thing that happened for me in, in high school that, that, that clenched it, that, that made it clear to me that I, that I loved computers, was, um, I, was I had a chemistry class. And my, uh, my mother was, taking, was working at the community college and she's a programmer by trade. And I wrote a program for her to, to uh, take in punch cards to the, this is how long ago this was, uh, to, to enter this program into the, into the school computer because I figured out a way, I wrote a program to solve my chemistry homework. <laughs> and to me, that felt valid. That felt like I was actually doing my chemistry if I wrote a program that demonstrated to me that I understood it enough. Now, it doesn't give you a lot of repetition. It gives the, the computer a lot of repetition. I'm just typing in numbers and, and out comes the answer. That wasn't considered valid by my teacher. So that wasn't showing my work. So perhaps I needed to take my, I needed to focus on chemistry in my chemistry class and programming in my programming class. But anyway, I felt good about solving a problem. And that was probably where I got hooked on, on solving problems with, with software, with computers. So that was in high school. Like I said, I sabotaged a lot. I wasn't prepared for college. I couldn't get into a, a college that I had dreamt about. So I took a different path and I went into the Air Force. I, my good friend um, decided to go into the military. So I thought I'd check it out. So it was what, like 18 or 20? Uh, 18. 18? Yeah, okay. so I was 18. Um, I signed up for the Air Force. That, to me, seemed the most dignified and gentlemanly of the services. I didn't want to crawl around in the mud uh, with a rifle. I wanted to work with planes. Uh, that, that intrigued me. I've loved planes since, since I was a child. Uh, so I chose the Air Force. That allowed me to uh, travel. I was stationed in Spain and... Uh, did spent three years. I, I did. I spent six months in <clears throat> in Denver, Colorado, in tech school, and then six months in Las Vegas in school, also in the Air Force. So I, I did a year of training, and then went into 
uh, was sent to Spain. And, and was it the, the, the lessons or the, the training you went through was for like a mechanics maintenance or it was also like computer because it was already a kind of, uh, of something that you, you, you loved at that time? Well, I was enlisted and, and enlisted people are not given that much trust. So uh, with that translated, that means that it was it wasn't programming because that was a much more sophisticated, a higher level of responsibility. It was maintenance. And I worked on the radar and weapons delivery systems okay. for the F-16. So that was in Torrejon, Spain. And uh, it was complex. It was a lot of work. It was late nights. I, I did the night shift. I signed up for that for some reason. And I think I, I would show up at work at three o'clock in the afternoon and work until early morning. And that was... That was the shift to get the planes ready for the next day. Okay. Um, one thing that I can't figure out is we would call them sorties, the flights. But when I'm in France, it confuses me because I look for a sortie when I'm in the, I look for the sign when I'm in the in the metro. So why exit is the same as a flight, I don't I don't know. <laughs> I'll, have to, I'll have to resolve that at some point. And so you stayed there for five years, or you, uh, four years? So oh, uh, years. one year of one year of education and three years of working. Then I got out and I, I went back to school. I was ready now to settle down. I had grown up. I had become an adult during that time, and I went back to school. I started at uh, University of California Irvine, so I was going to school there and working full time. That ended up being very very difficult to have a full time job and to go to school full-time. So after about a year and a half of doing that, I found a program through uh, University of San Francisco that allowed me to go to night school to complete my degree. So I completed my degree, which was in management of information systems. Okay. So I, fin I f was working full-time, going to school full-time for my for my schooling and getting married. So it was a quiet, it was a quiet period of life. <laughs> and then you so, was a, the first child born or oh, so? Yeah. No, no. Fortunately not, not for five years. So I had a little bit of a break. Okay. Yeah. But there was, there was something. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that was a good time. That was a really good time of life. Uh, were you able to, to do this, uh, this job, uh, which was in relation to you, the topic of your university, or it was only like a, a food job just to be able to live and, uh, and pay for your for your studies. No, it, it was a great job. It was I worked as a programmer for a um, a credit union. Okay. So I was working. Uh, f it was it was a system that was based on MAI Basic Four. Uh, I'm trying to think of the MAI. Yeah, MAI is the is the computer system, um, but uh, it's it's it was a popular mini computer in the United States. So back when we had. Uh, microcomputers, mini computers, and mainframes. Back when they they actually had mini computers, uh, so that was that was a great, it was a great job. I learned a tremendous amount. In fact, I had come out of the Air Force at that time. At, at that time, so I still had short hair, shortish hair, and I was very young. And one time, I was would, around uh, uh, so twenty two, twenty three. Yeah, yeah, probably okay. yeah, twenty twenty three at the time. Um, And I was really privileged. My credit, the credit union company said, we've got this, this credit union that's in New York that's being reviewed by the government because it looks like there might have been some fraudulent loans 
that were going on. This banquet, this credit union was not handled properly. So they sent me to do some, um, some auditing to run some reports there. So I had to go there and I was in Queens, New York, Jamaica. And I was in Jamaica, Queens, which is not the most glamorous area. <laughs> and I was staying at a hotel and I was checking out of, I had finished my work for the credit union, finished my investigation, my auditing, and was going to check out. And there were some young men there at the, at the checkout, uh, at, the, at the reception. They had, they had also checked out or they were standing there. I'm not sure why they were there. But I checked out and I, and I grabbed my suitcase and started walking out. And this gentleman in an army uniform said, whoa, 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 where are you going? And I said, I've checked out. I'm, I'm going to catch my plane. Oh, no, no, you're not. And it took me a minute or two of conversation to realize that he was, it was an overnight station. They were collecting people to go off to the military. So people that had signed up for the military, young men like myself, were staying at that hotel overnight because the next morning they were going to be bused to the military base. Fortunately, I had already been through the military, so I knew the language. I knew how to communicate to him. But I almost got roped off into <laughs> back, to yeah, back to the military. Yeah, drawn back in. So that was a little bit of a... Uh, Shocking moment. <laughs> and how long did you did you continue? Did you work for this um, uh, credit company in, in parallel to your your studies and your tuition? I, I did for a period of time, and unfortunately, um, that credit union company when it came into financial problems. And after talking to my fiance and saying. Just hang in there. I know I'm going to get paid next week. I know, I know they're two payments behind. They're two payrolls behind. But I really love this job. I was on the other side of the fence as an employee, and I was incredibly dedicated because I really love this company. And after not being paid again and again, I realized this is not going to turn out well. So I looked for another company that used the same programming language and the same systems and I found an insurance company. So that was, that was really good. I, I just was able to shift over to another company and uh, it was fine. Uh, it just reminded me something when you said like you love so much this job and you were almost ready to work for nothing. It's like uh, what my coach Nicolas Ignon said that regarding what we call the genuine zone. The genuine zone, and it's a kind of job that you love so much that give you so much energy that, that when you complete the task or you complete the job, you have more energy than when you start and you have been started. Yes, yes, yes. While uh, the, the, the competency zone is you are super good doing it, but at the end you feel a bit tired. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So now we um, super uh, try to find the, the genuine zones for the, the, with the people I work with and for myself because it, It gives so much energy, enthusiasm um, to, to move forward because you just love that, that, that thing to, right. to continue. You can never end almost. You can never end. It's fulfilling. Yes. So one of the, that reminds me of something interesting with, um, with, with work and uh, employees and, and finding team members. In the United States, we have an incredible difficulty finding enough talented skilled programmers. There's an incredible need for that. 
and probably will be for a, a period of time. Semi in France, huh? I can tell yeah, you. Yeah. <laughs> no problems have been solved anywhere. No, absolutely. So uh, sometimes I'll talk to other parents and or or other young people, and they'll and they'll say, "Wow, there's really that much demand for for programmers." I'm and I tell them, "Absolutely." Well, well, how much do programmers get paid? And I talk to them about that, and they're like, their eyes get big, and they think, "Wow, I could I could do that right out of college," and da 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 da, you know, so on and so forth, and they're intrigued by it but then internally I don't share this with them not with all of them some of them I do when I'm very feeling very honest I share with them that the best programmers that I know they don't take programming as a job because it's it's available they take programming as a job because that's what they love and if they didn't if if they weren't working as a programmer, they would still be playing as a programmer at home. They would still be experimenting and learning. That's core to who they are. And those are the most successful programmers. Those are the people that we're always looking for as people that that code runs in their blood. Absolutely. And and that was who I was at the time. That that I was I I was programming since I was in junior high. My my mom bought me a, a Vic 20 first and then a Commodore 64. And I had to sell her on that, that yes, it's $200. I know, I know it's a lot of money, but I promise I'll use it. And I did. <laughs> yeah, because it's what you said already, like your teenage, you were interested by solving problems. Yeah. And I think one of the core of, of, of this and, uh, and it's aware with the language, a type of computer language to be able to... Uh, go fast with complex computation, this kind of thing. That's the beauty because then it's unlimited in terms of problem right. solving potentially. Oh, yes. yes. And even we, we believe that. Programmers believe it's unlimited. It's not unlimited, but yes, we, we, we buy into yeah. that. Yes. And um, what I like is that it's when we balance this computer power with the human ability to also feel the problem. Especially, for example, in the health center, in the health business, or right. in the, not business, but in the health, now they can accelerate you, you, a lot. You're in France. In the, in the U.S., it is the health business. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> in France, it will... <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> yes. But, uh, yes, definitely, the computer can help a lot to go faster, uh, yes. uh, do much more complex um, diagnosis, etc. But then, as soon as the, the doctor comes and try to understand what is your life at home, how is your life at work? Uh, do you have any problem with your uh, household? Whatever. Then they can um, make an understanding that it's not only a question of disease. That might be also a psychological problem. And uh, for me, the, the, the core and mixing these two is super, super good. If we just limit ourselves to computer, it's extremely, uh, let's say, cold. Yes, yes, <laughs> it's yes. It's a one or zero idea. Impersonal, so, uh, yes. Yeah, yeah, impersonal, exactly. Yeah. Very, very true. It's only as personal as the programmer, and oftentimes that isn't the goal of the the uh, project. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and also, I, there is many business when we put too many expectations that everything can be solved by a computer. Yes. And, um, we are far from being that, unfortunately, <laughs> right. because the human brain is much more complex than what we, we believe in. But uh, yes, we can enhance and we can, we can improve that a lot. Yeah. 
So then at your, if we go back, so you, you were at your insurance company, mm-hmm. you, were, you have been graduated at that time. Mm-hmm. And so what did you do? Did you directly start your, your, your business or how, how, how was the bridge between this, let's say, finance experience with your loan company, your credit company and then yeah. insurance company? I put it in the finance world. And then to what was the next step? So at that stage, um, programming was exploding. It was uh, we are in nineties or at what? It, yeah, we're we're at ninety two at this okay. point. Yeah, between ninety two and and ninety five is okay. is kind of the time span that we're talking about right now. For me, also at this age, I was using my first Windows computer. I guess it was Windows 3.1 or something oh, like that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah That's absolutely. right, in 94, I right. remember. So and we it, are around that, that yeah. moment. I remember it installs on a stack of 8 or 11 floppy disks. Or, or the, the, Remember how expensive those, those oh, disks yeah. were? The, the, <laughs> yeah. I remember going to, there was a store called Egghead, and they would sell 10 of them in a box, a little box of 10, and it was like 40 euro for a box of 10 discs. It was crazy. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah. So it, around that time, um, things were exploding. There was so much opportunity. It was a gold rush in programming. And I was also, I was engaged, uh, paying, contributing to a wedding, uh, about to be married to the, the the most wonderful woman that I've ever met. And I thought, hmm. Our regards to Deepa. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Uh, um, so I thought a little extra money might be helpful during this busy, busy time. So I, I remember take going way back. Um, I was talking to a headhunter, a person that places progr- programmers. And this headhunter asked me, well, how much are you looking to make? And this was back back in those days, and I wasn't making that much. And I said... You mean in salary wages? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. So I said, um, well, I would like to make around thirty or $35,000. Uh, no, I said thirty or thirty-five. I was being cool and just, and not saying, you know, 1,000 and, you know, hey, you know, I'm so grown up and 30, 35. And she's, and the headhunter said, okay, I can probably get you bet- around $35 an hour. And I and the the world stopped. Went, the earth stopped. Because I was saying $35,000 a year. And she was offering me $35 an hour. She was doubling that. And I, I didn't, it, it just, it rocked my world. I didn't know that it was even possible. So back in those days, and probably still true to, to a certain extent, Programmers would, if they could go from 35 to 36, they would jump, they would change jobs. It was horrible. People were jumping all around for $1, $2 more an hour. And, and that was, that was a, a challenge that I'm not proud of how people were at the time, how we programmers were. But I was working for a company and I was doing a side job and doing, doing programming. Uh, I had a day job and I had a side job working for Mitsubishi. So in the evening, I would go to Mitsubishi, and they were so hungry for help that they would let me, starting at 6 o'clock in the evening, I would show up at 6, and I would work till 8 or 9 o'clock in the evening there. So that was a couple days a week, and we were working on, uh, I think it was a, I don't even remember, was it, it was a human resources system or something like that. Okay. A lot of access. They loved access, and I was, that was really, a, that was disappointing to me. 
So um, that's what I that's how that, that's what I was doing for work at that time, and it wasn't until I did a project for Mitsubishi that our our team didn't do a very good job. It didn't turn out well. I did another project for uh, Coldwell Banker. Uh, they it was right at the time that they owned Avis, which was into, or they were purchasing Avis. So there was a great tie. It was it was meant to be. Okay. Um, uh, and well, not Coldwell Banker, but it was H HFS or something like that. I for HFC. I can't remember the name of the company. But anyway, um, did did a side project for them, and then I realized, wow, all these projects, they're not being managed very well. They I think I could do a better job. They have 10, 5, 15 different programmers working on it. They have a, a business manager who doesn't understand both business and programming. I think that back in those days, you had to have a foot in each world to understand because you had to understand what people were asking for and you had to understand how to work with programmers because there's a bridge, there's a gap between real life and what programmers see. <laughs> there was no product manager at that no, time. No, 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 no. Oh, okay. Yeah. And you were like following specifications, just try to translate into a computer language, that's it? Right. And there, run it and... Uh... We would have some... In, uh, Coldwell Banker at the time was, was fairly progressive and they had business analysts at least. So they were collecting requirements, but there's still a need to translate those business requirements to bridge those to technical requirements. They're not, business requirements at that time were not as technical or, or refined. We were just introducing the concept of use cases back then. That was new to, to the, the time. This, we were, people were coming off of COBOL at, at this location. There was a lot of interest in, um, in programming and in, in Windows and Windows 3.1, of course, and, Power Builder was a big was a big system back then. No one ever has ever heard of it these days, but it was a, a big push back then. But anyway, um, we uh, I, I I saw there was an opportunity, and I started first staffing, providing, uh, going out into the field, finding good programmers, and bringing them to to Coldwell Banker, and then I pitched actually doing the actual projects. So I started doing projects for different companies. So you were, you, you were, that was your first entrepreneur experience? You were doing on your own or you were still a... a yeah, yeah, no, man? no. I was, doing, I was doing both. I was, I was working there as a contractor. Okay. And I was bringing other contracting programmers to that, uh, to that company. And then eventually I started offering package services that where we would do the actual project for this company or other companies. So I started reaching out into the community to find out which other companies are there other companies that needed programming services uh, I worked with a home builder worked with a couple couple different companies uh, to build custom software for them so that was that was the beginning of, of my serious entrepreneurship and um, I have to pause for a second because I have to collect my thoughts as to where where the next jump was. Um, so. You were 30, around 30s? Yeah. Okay. I, so at, at this point, it was probably. So rolling back a little bit, when I was working uh, for, the, for one of the companies, 
I had some Microsoft consultants that I was working with and they came in and they were, uh, this was 90, 92, 91. They said, hey, Michael, uh, we're not supposed to do this. We're not allowed to contact employees of companies and offer them jobs at Microsoft, but we think you would be a good fit. And, uh, and I'm, I'm just, I, I, I am so sad about my lack of understanding of the world at this point. They told me that and I said, okay, great. You know, tell me a little bit about it. Well, you, you get this, 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 and you get stock options. And at I Microsoft. Said, at Microsoft. <laughs> yeah. When they were still splitting every, every 12 months, every 18 months. And I was like, hmm, yeah, that's, that's interesting, but I'd rather get paid more. <laughs> So, so I stayed in my regular hourly job, getting paid lots hourly, no stock options. And it wasn't until 96 that I got approached again. And I said, yeah, yeah, okay. These stock options are crazy. I'd be a multimillionaire by now if I had taken the job back then. Because the stock was splitting truly every 12 or 18 months. It was on fire. So I joined Microsoft. This is going to be great. I joined Microsoft. We get pregnant and the stock starts, stops splitting. So I was the cooler. I was the person that cooled off the stock. <laughs> uh, and I found out that we had our first child. We had our son. And it's really hard to feed your family on stock options. <laughs> you need to have salary. I took a huge salary cut in order to have both salary and handsome stock options. But the stock options had a four-year vesting plan. It took, a, it took a while to vest. So that was a really hard way to live when I just started a family. We decided that my wife wanted to was going to stay home and raise our children. And I was the only... Uh, income source, but I was at a reduced level. So it didn't work out for me to stay at Microsoft. I, I had fun there. I enjoyed it. It just financially didn't make sense. So I had to go back to consulting and doing doing projects. And that's when I was, uh, my business partner and I, we had a company called Symmetry and we were doing custom software development. And it was there that I got into car rental. And working there, It, car, car rental or hotel? Well, yeah, hotel first. Ah, yes, this is what I, uh, I, I remember. So we're working in our office in, in beautiful Irvine, California. And right next to the university, actually. It, was, it actually was a nice, it, it was a neat office. And good for the head hunting. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes, that's right. And this was in the late 90s, very late 90s. We're talking 98 probably at this point. Um, at this point, so we, a woman walks into our office and she was a revenue, hotel revenue manager. And she said, you know, what we do today is we call around to find out how much rooms are. So I call my local Hyatt, I call my local Hilton, I call my local Marriott to find out what the rack rate is for for tonight to find out what to charge. 
But at that time, there was only one rate. There was a rack rate. Yeah, yeah. Because now there is multiple promotional. Yes. And rack rate does not mean anything because it's displayed behind the door. Right, so, right. Okay, so at that time, there was only just to know the rack rate. Yeah, and the rack rate was the point of reference. They may do a um, romantic weekend special where they add champagne for another 20 or something like that. You know, they might do packages, but everything was based off the rack rate. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was tethered or connected after that. Mm -hmm. So she said, we call around to get these rates, mm -hmm. but the, um, but the, uh, the thing that's kind of confusing me is this internet. Now the Hilton has a website and Marriott has a website and it's a lot of work to have to check all the websites to see what the rack rate is and have to call around. Is there some kind of computer program that can do this for me? And we said, absolutely. We, that's, that's what we do is we create this, this kind of thing. And we, took, we leveraged our understanding of a, a DLL back in the time called eHalapi, which was screen scraping for mainframes. That's the technology that was used to interact with mainstream mainframe green screens. That's how Windows could talk to a mainframe and type information into a mainframe and collect information from a mainframe in an automated fashion. So I had been on a project involved that involved that technology and I said, maybe a website would be much the same as interacting with a mainframe. I know that's disrespectful to the web <laughs> to equate it to a green screen mainframe, but the concepts were, were similar. So we created a program to do that. And the funny thing is we worked really hard so that one PC running Windows could do, I guess, around 2,500 shops or rate collections a day. 2,500 while I, the lady was doing on the phone. Yeah, when, it, when she was doing it on the phone, she couldn't do. This was an incredible speed improvement. Wow. And anyone today would chuckle at 2,500 in a day. But back then, that was just the beginning of everything. And it, uh, it changed the course of revenue management in many ways. Just, yeah. you know, we are in, in 2022 when we record yeah. today. Uh, right. We just learned that some companies which are big are still doing some manual checks as well. <laughs> true, so, true. <laughs> so it's not that, you know, uh, totally... Uh, 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 um, Outlandish. Uh, yes, yeah. yes. Still acting, unfortunately. So Yes. And point of reference, good, good point. So back then in 98, back last century, we would, uh, we would collect 2,500 in a day uh, 2,500 is something that can be done in a matter of minutes today in under five minutes. So it's a, tr it's a drop in the bucket by comparison to what we do today. The desire, the need for competitive data is so incredible that there's actually companies today that are focused on Absolutely. just collecting competitive data. Absolutely. I remember at this time I was doing, a, I was finishing some, uh, business studies and I've been working for a, a, a producer of oil uh, on the retail market and the guy they had this Nielsen mm -hmm. which was a huge company that was sending some guys in the shops in the retail shops just to collect the price of these products and then every usually if I remember it was like every Monday they were like waiting like how are we positioned on right. different, different brands around France by region, by, by area, etc. 
and uh, and uh, that was uh, yes. Now techno can do it uh, yeah. extremely fast, but there, sti- I think there is still some people that are visiting those shops because By they hand, want yes. to. Yeah, yeah, that that's important. So. Uh, and, and so this lady, so you produced this program for her, for, 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 for the hotel, her hotel, right? As revenue manager, that was your first contact with revenue management. In fact, it, it was. It was. We started a company. We worked together. It was called Checkrate, and we went to high to high tech, and we pitched it. We had a little. I still have the video for it, and it was ahead of its time. People were shocked that that could be that that data could be collected online. Um, she did the marketing and sales, and we did the the tech part. So it was a it was a good partnership. Um, we eventually with this revenue manager. Mm-hmm. Ah, cool. We eventually worked with um, a company called Hotel Revmax, and we provided the data to them to Hotel Revmax, and they were they Hotel Revmax and our company at the time Rate City was acquired by TravelClick. So that's that was the lead in to. Uh, falling backwards into car rental, I, we sold the we sold the company, and it was now time to find what's another need for this technology for this rate collection technology. But how long how long were you in this hotel um, rate collection business? Couple of years? Yeah, two, two or three years. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. instantly, TravelClick identified that you, there are there is a great techno here, and right. they can they can maybe integrate this yep. techno, but. You, now, when you do this type of business nowadays, you have to stay. So you cannot sell the company and go. You know, you have to stay a couple right. of years in order right. to make sure that you are not selling, in fact, a fake business or a fake yes. techno. No, you were able to sell and go. As a, we, we worked with, uh, with TravelClick for about six months, maybe 12 months at the most consulting. Uh, they ended up acquiring yet another company. Uh, that did the same kind of techno. They were trying to, I think they were trying to consolidate all that out there. And at the time, Emmanuel, we were providing data only. We were not doing anything revenue management specific. It was just hotel data. We were collecting hotel data. Raw data, tables, and that's it. Yeah, yeah, we we were really good at that. And and that's how we got into car rental is just collecting the, the data originally. Because you were not allowed by contract to go back to the hotel, right, correct? Right. Okay. And we only collected data because we didn't understand revenue management enough at the time. We didn't understand the problem to solve. It wasn't until we were, it was 2001 when we were starting to flirt with, with car rental. And it was in 2002 that we formed Rate Highway. And it started out with collecting data and then we understood. So there was a rate city, yeah, and then a rate highway. That's the new yes. name. Yes, and and they were. I, I it's we, we carry those names with us. They were done tongue in cheek as a kind of um, silly. It was kind of a fun name. We were very serious with symmetry because that was symmetry is balance and everything like that, and that's good. But rate city and rate highway were a bit um, um, lighthearted. But they have stuck with us, and and, and it's extremely explicit, yes, in a way. So that, that that's, I think that's a good name. Yeah. So um, we were collecting data only in the beginning, and then we realized, well, people people are taking this data, and then they're having to figure out based on what this data represents, where their pricing should be, 
and then having to hand enter the prices into uh, their system. And we said, so wow. an Excel spreadsheet, something, and it, then to decide and to reload those prices or the right. new decision into their uh, PMS at that time. Exactly. Or... And, and remember back then, you couldn't even upload a spreadsheet. That was just, you had to hand type it in each, each time. Uploading spreadsheets didn't happen until probably mid-2000s, two th- mid, uh, maybe 2005, 2007. In fact, Emmanuel, when we first started, one of our uh, differentiators was we could generate a form that was then faxed. We would fax into Dollar Thrifty new prices and there was here's the price for this season here's the price for that season and Uh, and, next weekend yeah exactly and we were so proud of the fact that we could generate we could print out a piece of paper and then fax that in so we go from this super high-tech solution to this very low-tech was it like a a regular letter format or it was also a kind of you know those those um, uh, ribbon i don't know you call it you know those fax machine on which you have like papyrus you know (laughs) no no it was a pretty modern format okay yeah it it was it was um i think the template was actually in excel or something like that Ah, so it's a bit of a grid but there was what is your daily rate what's your extra day rate what's your weekly rate what's your well back then we had weekends too so in the U.S., we had a daily rate, a weekend rate, a weekly rate, and a monthly rate, and that's it. Okay. And you, would, you would have that for for a week or for a month. So. And did you approach yourself these these uh, car business, or did they approach you because they were saying what you are you have been doing on the on the hotel side? So let me be honest with you. And this is this is a learning a learning lesson that I fought against. I fought against it so hard. I really believed that if I created a better mousetrap, that's all I had to do. The world would recognize it. I worked so hard to create the best mousetrap for this technology, for this problem. It doesn't work that way, I learned. (laughs) I learned that people don't find you hiding behind your computer. You have to go find them. So for anyone contemplating starting a business out there, it's equal parts a solution and equal parts marketing and communicating and understanding your audience. So I really believed I could, I could live behind my screen and work so hard and create the best mousetrap, but it, there's more to it than that. But uh, you didn't have any, uh, any experience, no training on that? So no, you just no. did it like naturally? You were well, ringing was, the door, uh, hello? It was very, it was very unnatural. It was you force yourself a oh, lot. Yes, yes. I, I, my comfort zone is in a corner behind the screen, working. You know, working on the computer, and to have to overcome that, to have to interact with people, to have to cold call, to have to um, reach out and try to promote something. And the hardest thing for a technology person, the hardest thing I believe, is not talking about the features. Shut up. Don't talk about the tech. Talk about the benefit. Talk about not the steak, but the sizzle. And it's so hard because that's my comfort zone. Is let, oh my gosh, Emmanuel, we can generate 300 faxes per hour in that. <laughs> well, who cares? <laughs> Tell me how many rates I can manage or that my revenue management process can be reduced from eight hours to 15. That's the sizzle. 
but I had a hard time getting there. It took me a long time and a lot of knocks on the head to realize that people don't care about the tech. They care about their problems. Be quiet, listen to their problem, and solve that. And that's something that I enjoy working with Weald about because you are the master at that. I enjoy watching. It just shows me I have so much to learn still. I'm still 20 years into this. I'm still on that journey. That's good because the, for me, the, the, the knowledge and the knowledge, it's a never-ending story. We can only always be better as long as we want to learn something. And it's unlimited because yes. just talking, we learn new things. But uh, say, oh, let's, let's try Let's try this and uh, see how it goes. And maybe I can look at a mentor or use a mentor or even follow some trainings. And at the end, uh, afterwards, I will adapt these lessons to myself or to what I like and then continue to progress. Never believe that it's, uh, I know that I know that for me, that sure we, I know that I know that the end. (laughs) Yes, yes. (laughs) Because uh, uh, we have uh, some, yes, it means that, okay, I've achieved something. But in fact, for me, it's unlimited. So. The, and so how did you how did you learn that part? Because if you had to force yourself, you just like give you a kick in the ass and they say, okay, now I need to give a call to Thrifty AVs Earth and see how it goes. Or did you learn or did you follow some courses? Or No, I, I in, in the past, I had listened to some courses, um, self-improvement and, you know, visualization, power of thought, the, um, um, I'm trying to think of some of the terminology. But uh, um, yes, I had I had done some listen to cassettes back when they had cassettes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Brian Tracy was one of the people that uh, I listened I know, to. Yeah, yeah. so um, I, I really enjoyed those cassettes. I used to ride my ten speed. I would I would uh, was really into bike riding, uh, road bike riding, and I would listen. I had my Walkman oh, man. <laughs> yeah. yes, okay. with my cassettes and have to flip it over. And uh, but yes, a little bit of training that was that was way back and I, I tapped into that but it was just trial and error trial and error um and you were how many were you at that time you were only there was three of us back back in the early day no 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 when we first started yeah it's actually kind of sad there's a there's a sad element to this because when we first started the 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 uh, car stuff we had four programmers and two, uh, two executives and one salesperson. So that's, that's what the company was at the time. And we had a really great programmer, a lot of promise. He was in college at the time. He worked for us and really enjoyed working with him. But he was in, he was in college and finishing his college. He then went off to do some of his own things. He's created apps for the iPhone. He's incredible, incredible creative talent. And then about five years ago, came back. He, we connected and he had always enjoyed working with the team. Uh, we had always enjoyed him and his contribution. He came back and eventually became our uh, uh, manager of development, our development manager. Unfortunately, we lost him about two years ago he uh he passed away around valentine's day he was on a trip with his family and uh it was super young so yeah yeah he was in his uh early 40s yeah he like 41 42 and uh completely unexpected 
and it was a real hit to our organization because not only was he a great technical contributor, but he was just a great person, really insightful, really um, curious. And we used to talk about where tech was going, the, the automation. Um, there's, if my kids ever hear this, they'll chuckle. There's um, this character on Instagram called uh, Little Michaela, and it's, it's an art project. It's a simulated person, it's not a real person, but it's a art project and a tech project where they put her in real situations with real people. So it's, it's, I don't know if they're using Photoshop to do it, I don't know how they're doing it, but she, she's sung songs, she's done all this. They're creating this persona just as an experiment, as a social experiment. And it's fascinating if, if, um, if you're not familiar, it's worth, it's worth checking out. And, and how did you, uh, I mean, personally, it should I certainly have been a big shock. Yeah, kind of, and did was. you believe that the, the company would stop or how did you overcome this? Uh, because it's a big, uh, in the organization, some well, people when they leave, it's already something important, but unfortunately when one important guy or a key guy dies, oh. Yeah, it, it was super painful. Um, and it was harder for me on an emotional level than it was on a business level. I missed him, he was like a younger brother. And I really enjoyed our, our connection. I really enjoyed our conversations together and our interest in, in many common areas. However, I had already experienced some bumps and bruises. I had already, um, I'd been through a bankruptcy with the company. And it was then way back in with Symmetry when we did, uh, when we went through bankruptcy, my business partner and I, Julie, uh, we- She's your sister, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> it's um, a family business. That's, it is. Um, held on to our employees as long as possible um, to our detriment. And we weren't getting paid, we weren't paying ourselves, we were keeping, we were making sure that they got paid, hoping to, to, to come out of this in the other end. Uh, we learned the hard way that it's better to, um, it's better to let people, if you think it's, gonna, it's not gonna work out, it's better to let them go as soon as possible because we, we kept them on, uh, eventually let them go, and they were, they didn't, they were bitter about being let go. They couldn't see the benefit of being kept on that long. They didn't see the, they didn't see the effort we put into it. Mm -hmm, they, mm -hmm. and understandably, they lost their jobs. Their world was turned upside down. So I understand that. The life lesson was uh, let people go sooner than later. And it was then that I learned that the show can go on. Even if you get rid of someone or someone leaves or or you have to fire someone that you think is absolutely critical, you have to find a way to just keep on going. So I knew when we lost Jeff that um, we the, the show would go on, but it would just it would be a, a hard person. We could never replace him, but we could definitely find someone or find people who could take over his responsibilities. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And we've, we've had, we have a great team today and our team just absolutely stepped up. Uh, they had the same love for Jeff also. And it was both an honor to take over some of his responsibilities and a, and a privilege. 
So it means that the team you have, most of them, uh, in addition to your uh, your partner for sure, Julie, but they are there since the last 15 or 20 years? No, no. We The team that we have now has been there for probably the last seven or so. Ah, that's... Yeah, for a while. That's right. Yeah, so it's we try to to hire very carefully and find people that fit into the culture of, of our company and our thought process, process and, and truly have a passion to, to help people, to, to solve, to make car rental better. And what are these, uh, these, these values or these purpose that you share with your team uh, and surely with your partners and, and clients? What makes uh, Rate Highway uh, so unique that people stay, especially in this nowadays when there is a lot of mercenaries on the market, yes. they can switch. Yes. It's a mercato, as we say in football in Europe, they can switch from one team or one client to, a, to a, one company to another. So how did you succeed in keeping these guys happy, uh, continue to work hard and improve? And uh... it's, it's a challenge. And, and one of the funny things in programming and in, in tech is... Most tech people uh, use Google as their as their assistant, and it's a it's an open secret that programmers will run into a challenge and they'll Google who who else has solved this problem? How is how has this problem been solved before? Because I guarantee you, every single problem that you run into has been solved many times over by somebody else. It may be a different flavor. But it's the same idea, mm-hmm. the same concept has been solved. So we programmers resort to or depend upon Googling answers. Uh, so they would go so every time I investigate something to see how something could be done, I I use Google and I and it lands me at one of these programming websites. Here's a library of how this was done or how that was done. And every single time I cringe, I shudder because they always are full of ads of, oh, there's great jobs in your area. Oh, there's, would you like to make more money? Great programming jobs. And I know that everyone on the team is, is, is going to these same websites and looking at these same ads. I'm like, oh my gosh, it, I'm so glad that they, they, they're with us. I'm so happy that they're with us because like I said, we have a great team. And I don't know the. I don't know that there's an obvious three steps that if you give people enough coffee, enough croissant, and enough you know time off, that that's the answer. I, there there isn't a particular formula. I think it's creating community. I think it's you've you've said it better you know best in some of our conversations we've had in the past about creating creating safety, and creating that comfort. I believe that that our team feels that they can make a mistake. They can, they can trip and it's going to be okay. One of the things that I always say to our team is there's going to be problems. There's going to be errors. There's going to be bugs. It's not about whether we create bugs or not. It's how we respond to them. Mm-hmm. It's how the customer sees us dealing with it. We're responsive. We care. And that's one of the differentiators about our company is we are so customer focused. It gets expensive at times, but but we are the most customer focused company in our niche. So I'm proud of that. 
and, and we come back to what drives you, which yeah. is a problem solve, uh, to try to solve problems to a human. Right, right. <laughs> Not to go necessarily faster or computer more, but it's really what the guy needs behind and uh, to do what. I, I, and that's, it's a bigger, it's a holistic thing. I, I, I feel like if we all in this world took a moment to say, what can we do to make just one area a little bit better. If we all contributed to that, I just think we would have a better world. And my part is creating a, a, a healthy, happy, comfortable work environment that in turn creates the, the premier product for, for revenue management, for the, and I have to be careful because we're both in the same, we're both in revenue management, but we do very different things. Um, for the management of rates, for the pricing element of it. Mm -hmm. So it's important to solve problems in this regard. It's important to create good products because we want to create a healthy operation, a healthy car rental operation, which will create a healthy market, which will create a healthy industry. So that is, that's our value system is to help. Uh, uh so at, at that time, you, you remain mostly focused in the U.S. or and maybe it's still your market or are you also or when did you start it or have you started to go broader we, international? We started in the U.S., yes. So we were working with every single major brand for many, many, many years. Okay. Um, and then we realized our focus really isn't on the corporate stores, our focus is on the franchises and the licensees and the affiliates of, of car rental. And we kind of just out of sheer luck, we're exposed to opportunities in Latin America. So we've, we've expanded into Latin America. Also, we, for the, for the first 12 years, we were, it was all about the U S there was so much activity in the U S and in Canada um, that we were consumed by that. We were absolutely consumed. And then we ex uh, expanded into Latin America. We learned that as Americans, we like to think that English is all you need. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> so we have a Latin America sales manager and um, he's helped us expand Luis. He's been great. He lives in Costa Rica and uh, he's helped us with Latin, ex expanding Latin America. And we've also expanded into, into Europe and uh, Oceania. So we have customers in New Zealand and Australia also. Okay. And in Asia, do you feel, uh, or they are a little bit behind already? I mean, still in terms of processes or IT or these kind of things? So I used to, I, I did a, a, a big sales pitch. Uh, one time to to Europe car and I think that I, it, it I took a brave step and I said that I've been with car rental in the US since 1999 is when I first got exposed to it so I can track and I can tell you that in 1999 we had uh, daily rates weekend rates weekly rates and monthly rates and this is how we did it and then by 2005, people started abandoning weekend rates. And that's when they started having a different Monday rate, a different Tuesday rate, and mm -hmm. so on and so mm -hmm. forth. And there's a progression. 
and I've based it on the U.S. And I can, and, and just for fun, we've said that okay, um, Argentina, they're in U.S. Uh, 2004. That's the state that they're at right now. And we know what the next steps are going to be. We know the realization. We know what's going to happen in the market. Um, in the U.S., things are crazy where people are pricing differently by time of day pickup and stuff like that. So in Florida, that's the crucible of, of the, the foundry of car rental for the U.S. That's where all the most competitive actions are happening. If you can survive in Florida, then you can you can be successful in, in almost anywhere. Maybe not in San Diego. San Diego's tough, but uh, but that's where all these new ideas are coming out. The the ideas of of um, doing tricks with your zip codes, using everyone has an e car. Well, um, e car allows you to have a two door or a four door. What if I list my car as an e dar? Because I know I'm going to give a four door. But if I do an EDAR, no one's going to see me because they're, they're looking for my e-car to compare against. So tricks like that, tricks like, oh, if I have a pickup time at, tw uh, at 1.30 instead of 9.30, I'm going to have a different rate. I'm going to have afternoon rates versus morning rates. So anyway, Florida has been a tremendous education for Rate Highway. We've learned so much working with our Florida customers. I've been able to take the same information and apply it to other parts of the world. And back to Europe car, it, I didn't never wanted to, I never want to offend anyone. Um, but it was interesting because I could say, this is where certain markets are at. And this is probably what's going to happen next based on the pattern in the US. So the long winded answer to your question is yes, uh, Asia is tough because A, there's a different character set. So saving that information, dealing with that information is really tough for us because we have to have an expanded character set in mm -hmm. our computer system. And they're at a different, a different stage in their car rental evolution. So we have to look at where they're at on, the, on our US scale, mm -hmm. our, our, our ruler, and, and figure out what's the next step for, for Asia. Do, do you have the, uh, the, the, the feeling that now, with your Europe expansion, um, the the way that Florida or San Diego, mm -hmm. California is is working, do you do you see that is gonna be also the new standard of the uh, in, in, in Europe or? Uh, yes, because in, simultaneously yeah, we have also the the mobility as a service, right, which right. is also uh, coming now. And uh, is it that important to have a? per hour with a different rate from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. Isn't it more important to have a kind of connectivity with I'm coming by train, I want a car, and then I will drop out in the middle of nowhere to find a bike or to go, you know, these kind of right. things or to reach my ferry boat or my cruise line, whatever. All this, this thing and uh, how do you do, do you see this, uh, this evolution or? To, to your point, um... Europe has very specific needs and approaches and mindsets that, that are not the same as the U.S. So it's not as simple as saying, okay, uh, Germany is in U.S. 2012, and the next step is going to be blah, 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 blah. It, it's not that simple because you're right. There's, there's, uh, there's many variables in this. 
The interesting thing is we were both at WTM um, last week, this week actually, hmm. and something that's really big in the U.S. is being um, just explored, I think, in Europe right now. We were talking about contactless rental. And there's many people in Europe that are saying, uh, I don't see this happening. I don't see this doesn't, this is not a priority for me. At the same time, at this very minute, Emmanuel, the major OTAs in the US are saying, you better get on board with contactless rental because that's where it's going. And we at a website which shall remain unnamed are expecting you to be contactless rental because we want to drive the rental process. We want to own that customer so they just come through the process and they pick up that commoditized vehicle. It, it's gonna be a, a Ford Focus and it could be from vendor A, B, C, or D, but they're owning the customer. Mm -hmm. They're owning the experience. Yeah, so they want to, they don't want the, 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 the guy to show up at the counter because then he will share a few of his information right. and maybe the brand then or the operator will keep this and use it later in the of marketing. Exactly. I know that contractually, uh, the, the car rental are super uh, framed and uh, by these guys, these operator OTAs or brokers, not to use this information. But at the same time, to make the process smoother they would need more information so then the client does not need to show up. So it's really clear that the contactless yeah. will uh, make the, the entire process easier. And then the current rental will just become a pure operator, uh, I know. operation manager. But in the same time, they have the fleet cost, staff cost, operational cost, station cost. And uh, that's really not easy for them. Huh? No, and it's it's not necessarily a direction I agree with because in my experience, and this is not how the OTAs are supposed to, are wanting to be used, but I often use an OTA to find rates and then I go to that actual provider, that supplier, and book there because it's easier to interact with them if I need to make a change in the future. So I just use them as a Google to find the rate or the price that I'm that I'm looking for. I, I do the same. And also, um, whenever this process or along the journey of the car, if everything works well, no problem. As soon as something happens by, with the car, uh, you had a car accident, you are a tire crash, whatever, right. or what happened with the COVID, for example, yeah. when there's um, huge cancellations or credit notes, we know that these brokers and OTAs, they don't want to answer and they don't want to interact directly. They have almost sometimes no call center or you have to spend hours on the web just right. to, to find a bloody phone number <laughs> yeah. to talk with a human. Right. And um, while the car rental is there, he's open from uh, 6 to midnight, sometimes 6 a.m. to midnight, and he will, he will deal with the, 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 the customer. So um, I agree with you. Whenever I, I can buy, <laughs> I, I use either for the hotelbooking.com or rental cars. But if I can, I always book direct then. Right. As long as the price is correctly set. Because what yes. I don't understand is that those car rental companies, sometimes they are more expensive on their own website, even though they can save the commission or the, 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 the markup that will be taken by the broker or the OTA. 
but still they don't use it as a regular channel uh, to, yeah. to to attract more people and um, I know the hotel business like Hilton Accor those guys well, they spend a lot of money to make sure that whatever discount can be given will be to the direct consumer so come to my accord.com mm -hmm. website and you will be guaranteed to find the cheaper price eventually a beer at the, at the bar as soon as you arrive because you book direct yeah and those those car rental companies sometimes they are so afraid to do that because the power and the control of these brokers and their OTA over their business is simply too big. And you know what the story tells us? The story tells us that you can have the best technology in the world. You can solve all the problems and it still comes back to people. It still comes back to, I now, I have my car broke down. I need to go through five layers of people in order to get to the person that can actually help me. And me, maybe I'm being lazy, but I'd rather go through two layers of people to find someone who can help me, not five. <laughs> so it's easier to go direct. I prefer to go direct. It's a comfort of mine. It's a peace of mind for me. And in your uh, technical journey over the last 20 years, um, what was for you the, the most um, efficient techno or how did you see this evolution i don't know if it's like power of computation cost of whatever cpu or storage uh, on the servers uh, the cloud versus the local base what is for you the most astonished because you have been from almost the beginning of the, yeah. of the it like the 80s definitely 90s. the beginning of the microcomputer yes for sure uh, to now, what is the web for? Uh, sorry, the cloud or just the cost of the chip, as uh, Mr. Moore rules. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's a great question. So I, I've seen when it started with uh, Texas Instruments, the little programmable, the programmable calculator was like the the first entree into into a microcomputer. Then then the IBM PC and stuff like that, the 8088 chip, all that stuff. It's been amazing. And I feel so privileged to have been alive for that period because it's, it's like watching the evolution of from, you know, like a grandparent that got to see telephones and, and a man land on the moon, you know, to see mm. that span. So where we are today is so different than where we were. And... I think the most significant thing, honestly, is the internet. To me, I, it, it isn't, Moore's law is great. Yes, it keeps on driving prices down, or it keeps, on, it keeps on increasing abilities, but computers are still expensive. So it hasn't really helped me in that regard. It's not like we're down to, well, let's be fair here. Our cell phone, has got more power than the computer that was used to land on the moon the first Absolutely, time. Yeah. So that's pretty astonishing. But I think the internet is web pages. The World Wide Web is probably the most significant thing because it's connectivity. The connectivity of people being connected to each other and communicating is to me the most significant thing that I've seen in my lifetime from a technical perspective. The cloud's great, but as 
someone has a funny t-shirt that says the cloud is just someone else's computer. Absolutely. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I, I, think it's, I think it's the World Wide Web that the communication and the dissemination of information, the availability, the fact that our kids, Emmanuel, when I grew up, I had a encyclopedia. I don't know that my kids have ever touched an encyclopedia. Absolutely. Almost no dictionary at all. Oh, yes, yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. My, my mom used to infuriate me sometimes. She would, I, I, I'm a very, I'm a to- notoriously poor speller. And she would tell me, I would say, Mom, how do you spell this word? And she said, look it up in the dictionary. And I was frustrated because I would try to explain to her that if I don't know how to spell it, it's very hard to find in the dictionary. <laughs> But that didn't work for me. But so to your point about dictionary, I always I flash to that yeah. <laughs> to that childhood trauma. I was using a, a translator, which is which is Google, Google, and I just wanted to check what how do we say in English mercenaire, and it's exactly the same. But then I can use uh, instantly the, uh, the 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 way to mercenary. Sp- exactly. Right. Another system, yeah. so right. Mercenary. Yeah. So I can even understand. And okay, it's two clicks. That's it. Yeah. So uh, and then you have to. If you want to use a dictionary, you have to know the phonetic uh, uh, language, right. which is a bit weird because yeah. you know that will not help you, especially nowadays. And uh, uh, yeah, I yeah, the, in, the internet is something extremely uh, yes. I, I don't know in France if you learn this, but in the U.S. in school we had to learn what's called the Dewey Decimal for libraries. So. This is how information is categorized in the 100s is historical information, in the 200s is is biology, things like that. There was a number system in libraries that's used to categorize. Okay. And I think that no child born in the 2000s even knows knows what the Dewey Decimal System is is used for because they use their keyboard. That's how they find all the information they need. a caveat, there's a lot of misinformation that's shared on the internet, and that's the unfortunate dark side of the World Wide Web. But the ability to communicate, the connect, we have connected the world with the World Wide Web and to a level that I think is phenomenal. And I, th- I think that's the, that's the most significant achievement that I feel that we've accomplished in the last uh, 25 years. But how do you, uh, what is your perception on, or your understanding on the fact that there is so revolutionary that brings so much, mm-hmm. we still have clients or prospects, you and I, on the different topics that are st- still collecting prices manually, or even though they use a techno in order to collect this data, they have such a manual process to analyze, to take an action, to load this result into the operating yeah. system. What is for you the, the, are we talking to boomers only like our age <laughs> and those guys, they don't understand, but we are 50 plus and right. for us, it's like uh, so obvious. Right. What is your perception on that? And maybe also the perception between Europe and, and US about that. My perception goes back to your earlier comment is sometimes we just don't know what we don't know. And I think there's two, two um, causes for this. Cause number one is 
we do what we know. We're, we're comfortable. This is how we're, yes, I know, Emmanuel, it's not efficient to, to be searching this way. I know it's not the, the best way to do it. I'm sure there's probably other ways out there, but I'm so busy. I haven't had a chance to research that. I don't have the time. I'm so overwhelmed by spending five hours a day going on the internet, I don't have time to look for an alternative. The second thing is, we as humans are so resistant to change. And I'm sure that there's experts that could come in and, and watch me for a day and say, Michael, why are you living your, your life this way and that way? There's so, there's so many ways you can improve the way that you operate. I would be embarrassed if, if, I, if I had a team of experts get to, you know, had the privilege to, to watch me throughout the day. Because I'm undoubtedly, I am stuck in my ways also, in, 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 some way, in this way or that way, in ways that are not beneficial to me. So I think it's two things. I think it's lack of time. These people are so overwhelmed by what they're doing. And uh, it, it, it's comfortable. It's, it's what they know. What you know is comfortable. And sometimes it's hard to break out of, and we say in English, to break out of that rut. You know when you're driving on a road mm -hmm. uh, and it's dirt and there's, there's a groove in the, from the... A hole in the, yeah, in the, yeah. in the road? Well, it, it, a groove from the tires. Ah, okay. That's, we call that a rut. So you're, as you're driving, your, your car can get, get in that rut and it's, sometimes it's hard to get out or it, it likes to stay in there. Oh, yeah, I so see. So we as humans sometimes get stuck in a rut we, we it's just easier to travel in that in that valley uh than it is to look around and find the other alternative it takes effort it takes effort and that's that's my fine my final thought is it takes effort and emmanuel our prospects that we talk to are working so hard and are doing so many different tasks that I don't know that they have the mental capacity sometimes to say to stop and say, "I'm not being my most efficient. I can gain two hours a day by doing this." They know at the back in the back of their mind that it's not perfect, but it takes an interruption from us. It takes someone knocking on the door or calling and saying, "I can throw you a line. I can help you." Mm -hmm. um, that, that's that's my perception. But back to what you are saying regarding this development of OTAs and brokers mm -hmm. that really want to take this, to have this contactless in order to get longer the control of their customer. Right. It seems that for me, it's weird that these guys, which are operators, they don't feel that the more they continue this way, the less control they will have over their operations and they will remain bloody, simple, car cleaner yes uh car deliverer whatever you right. call it and and, and that's valet. it a valet <laughs> exactly it, it will become yeah. a valet yeah and uh you know it, going back on the on the pricing i remember sometime having seen an invoice in some crazy market like spain sometime even in the middle of summer you can have crazy price like five euros a day or one euro a day and the brokers they try to push it to the also in order to have more business coming to their web platform in order to convert better. So they are competing between each other for sure to attract more customers. But if they sell at five euros a day for a one week rental, the commission they will get or the markup they will put on it is negligible. 
Yes. So the way they, 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 they go around this is like, they send an invoice to the guy. They say, guy, you can put the price you want, but at the end, you will give me back 25 euros minimum guaranteed. So if you go over, then I will add on top my markup and it will be a variable. Right. But the minimum you will give me is 25. So if you want to sell at one euro a day, go for I know it's really like intense in Mexico, Cancun yes. and uh, Acapulco. Yeah. Ah, yes. Those guys, they're selling for nothing. And then right. you spend an hour at the counter because you have to negotiate for uh, insurance and all those uh, CDWs and all these things uh, because this is the only way to make money at right. the, the counter. So... Cancun's interesting, and then we'll go back to the question. Cancun's interesting because there's some markets where you can be self-insured, where the organization, if it's large enough, can create their own insurance program. So the government's mandating, Emmanuel, that you have to have insurance, but we can help you because we offer an insurance program. So they get 100% of everything that happens. Exactly. Um, so that's, yeah, that's... That's unfortunate. Fortunately, some of the OTAs are pushing back and they're saying, we know what you're doing. You know, charging a dollar is, is too, too low. It, it needs to be more, it needs to be higher than that because the OTAs for many of these customers get paid a transaction cost and a percentage. And no one wants a percentage of a dollar. Exactly. That's, that's, that's nothing. <laughs> and it, it's strange also in the, in the travel industry or in the travel business, like the airlines, I think it was a decade ago or maybe 15 years ago when they said, guys, we want to, to, give, to, get, to take the control back of our customer. There will not be any travel agency. We're not going to give a commission to anybody anymore. It's via us or nothing. And uh, then some travel agency or OTS decided to put a, 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 a fee, a service fee to handle the reservation. That right. makes sense. For the hotel, as I said earlier, uh, the big chains want to get the control back and they give the best price on their own dot com site. But at the end of the of the of this um, of this uh, process, we have the car rental operator that seems to be so behind. It's like it doesn't he or she they don't look at what is happening on the industry, and they are still driven by those brokers that have a yes, huge yes. power of of switching business from okay you don't want this anyway I have ten thousand days. 20,000 days, I don't care. I can put it in six. If tomorrow you know, I'm not happy, boom, I put it to another car rental right. company. And uh, almost instantly, because the customer at the end, what they want, the guarantee to get is a, a five-seater, seven-seater car available from the 10 to the 15 in, uh, in Miami or in Nice. That's it. Right. And uh, you use the word commodity, but uh, we really have to fight against that in order to push the service in front. Human, uh, whenever you have a problem, then you can have somebody to talk with that will find a way, maybe right. replace your car, blah, blah. Uh, because when you're in a country you don't know and you are facing this issue, you're super happy to be able to discuss with somebody, eventually yes. in your own language, that yes. could be the top. I ideally. Yeah. yeah, because those guys at Expedia or uh, rental cars, they don't want to to no. talk with these guys at all. No. And, and their hands are tied. They can't do anything. Hmm. So they're just going to try to pass you along or try to redirect you somewhere else. It's, it's not helpful. But you're right. There's I, There's got to be a French word for this, but the operators are beholden to the, to the brokers. There's so much power that they possess. Um, and the operators have the largest investment with all their vehicles. It's it's unfortunate. There needs to be a power shift 
where the, the operators have more control of their own destiny. I have recorded, a, uh, I shared these ideas on a previous post, a podcast uh, doing the history of this because I'm in this business for the last 25. So I've really seen that. And uh, uh, for me, one of the major aspects is when those car rental companies has been bought by invest investment funds. Right. They put them on the stock exchange. You just pay attention to this uh, uh, year um, uh, payback or uh, EBITDA um, uh, return. And so a way to reduce the, 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 the costs for them was also to subcontract the marketing. And when at that time the internet grows, uh, especially with after 2001, those Expedia, rental car booking, all these guys have been growing. It was good for the car rental company to say, oh, I don't need to invest in my marketing anymore. Right. I will, be, I will dis get this business directly. But after 20 years, they are their hands tight yes. to these guys and they cannot control anything anymore. No. And uh, now for me, they get their uh, a kind of boomerang effect. Yes, <laughs> on what absolutely. They have said. And uh, uh, some companies that remain independent or, as you said earlier, the independent car rental companies or franchisees, um, they have to realize that and they can get the control back. It will be tough. But if they decide, they can make it because the airline did, the hotels did, So it's not impossible if suddenly you don't give access to the stock. Right. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. Yes. It's yes. a question of power between those two and just to, to make it balance, I would say, between the, the, those two operators. Uh, definitely the relationship is not balanced right now. Right. And I, I need to remind you that I'm in France right now and I've seen uh, firsthand yesterday, for example, a protest or a strike in order to bring the power back to, to the operator. So <laughs> it's that very thing. Um, and, and going back to the contactless, because I think that, I think it's a long game. I think that the OTAs are playing the long game that they want to, they, it would be to their benefit to commoditize car rental and contactless. Yes. The, the new generation, you know, my kids love contactless, And I don't know if it's because it's better or because that's what they're used to, but they love contactless. And I think this plays into the OTA's plan of, uh, of having more and more control over the experience. So that could be a way for the operators to say, for example, contactless is reserved for our direct clients. Right. You want to save time, you want to make it easy, fair enough, but you go and book direct. For the other, you have to queue. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Will they be, will they be, uh, will they be strong enough or, or motivated enough to face those brokers? But that's a way to say, we right. are going to improve the service for our direct clients. Yes. And uh, they, do that, they do that very thing in the US, and I don't know if they've connected the dots. In the US, um, the OTAs will say, you cannot be lower than the rate that you post with us. The only way to make a lower rate is to be a member of Scuto Car Rental. If you go to Scuto Car Rental and you are a loyalty member, then you can get a 2% or a 5% discount from that. And that's a way to skirt that or to avoid that, that limitation. Hmm. So it's applying the same logic. That, that makes a lot of sense. That's a good idea. Um, now we, we, we come little by little to the end of our, of our interview. Um, do you have any, any 
method, any well, methodology you're still at uh, at 50 plus to continue to learn, to continue to improve yourself. Um, I do believe also in techno. There is so many things changing every day, every week. Right. Uh, that how do you, what kind of uh, of methodology you use to to do that and to remain up to up to date? I think or to learn simply. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think any kind of methodology, I think that's generous. That's a kind word to call it methodology. Um, I, I, I follow probably patterns. Uh, I, I'm, I love to read. Love, love, love to read. Um, because there's so much to learn. And the more that I learn, the more that I realize I don't know. It's, um, there's an author and uh, Ronald Dahl as an author and he in one of his books I think it's the Phantom Toll Booth which was a famous book that we read in the US as a in, in elementary school uh, and hopefully it's translated but he's also the um, he's the man who wrote Charlie and the Chocolate Factory okay and in his book Phantom Toll Booth he talks about I think it's like hunger soup or something like there's a soup that you eat the more you eat the hungrier you get so you have more soup and you're getting hungry and you and you want more soup and you're getting even hungrier. So I, I feel like knowledge is like that. The more knowledge that you get, the more you read, the more you discover there's fantastic things out there. The world is full of amazing things to learn and to know. Um, fortunately, it doesn't feel uncomfortable like hunger. It feels satisfying like, you know, being full. Uh, but so my strategy is to read. My strategy is to talk to people. Um, my strategy is to try to find ways to understand the people that we serve better. And that's interacting with operators. It's talking to operators. It's listening to operators. Um, it's finding people like yourself that are steps ahead in in formalizing an approach to learning and to growing and to understanding their their audience so it, it's helpful for me just to observe just to watch how we yield and you emmanuel operate with your customers it's it's so interesting and fulfilling because you are interacting with them in a way that satisfies their needs they get heard you understand what they're trying to solve and together i watch you guys you together you arrive at a better place you find a way to solve problems and to meet needs if we look backwards uh, uh to your uh, to your teenage like you were 20 yeah. or when you finish your uh, uh your high school mm -hmm. what do you say yeah what would you say to this Michael at eighteen twenty? Would you? What kind of advice would you would you have given him? Would you give him? It's funny that you say that because that's a question I ask other people sometimes too. Because more than anything, I wish I could go back in time. Because I would I would tell myself two things. I, it's ironic that you ask this because I think about this. I would tell myself it's going to be okay. Take a risk. It's. I spend too much of my life worrying about. Oh, is this going to work out? I'm going to take. I'm going to take this direction or that direction. 
Yes, it, it, it always works out, maybe in varying degrees, sometimes uh, fantastic and sometimes less fantastic, but no one dies. You know, it's going to be okay. Um, and I would tell myself to take risks, take more risks. I'm by nature a fairly conservative person. I, I don't take a lot of risks. I don't jump off a lot of cliffs. And I would tell my younger self to be to live a as bold a life as you possibly can so and uh thanks for 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 this uh for for this uh you suggested a, a book uh to, to us a, any uh so it was a kind of old book uh, well, from, yeah. from that guy? Or from yeah, I, I, don't, I don't necessarily recommend that. It just made me think of that. Okay. The, one of my favorite current books is uh, The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg. And it just resonated with me. I really, really enjoyed the book. Power um, of Habit. Power of Habit, yes. Okay. By Charles Duhigg. Um, I actually listened to the book. I didn't read it, but I listened to the book. And he actually, on books on tape, or not books on tape, That's it's the Audible, uh, on Audible. <laughs> Flashback to many years ago. Um, nothing's on tape anymore. <laughs> so uh, that's a great book. It's, it's insightful and it's inspirational in some ways to, to it encouraged me to try to, to make changes, positive changes in my life. And uh, where we can follow you? Are you on a kind of a social media or like LinkedIn? Um, do you publish something or do you write or are you? That's such a great question because I'm really at this stage of my life watching what I watch. I'm really conflicted about social media. I have very mixed feelings. I have a daughter and I feel that social media is destructive to, to women. Or it's difficult. It's it's difficult for women, especially for men too. But it's difficult for women, especially. Why that? Why um, more women than men? I think it creates the the real answer that why it's more difficult for women than men is because women's social value is often associated with their appearance. Men's social value is often associated with their income level. It's in the simplest of terms. Social media, it's, it's more of a forum for visual presentation than bank accounts being presented or, or anything like that. So I think that it's more of a, of a playing field, a competitive playing field for women. Uh, and, and that's just my perception and, and my experience being married to a woman and having a, uh, an adult daughter. I, I just, I don't see a lot of positive things in Instagram, uh, for example, and, and the, the ilk. As far as answering your question more directly, um, I am on LinkedIn. I don't publish as much as I should. And you have inspired me after asking that question that it's it's hard to it's hard to connect with me i would love to have more i would love to connect with more people especially people that listen to this 
and find this interesting or have questions, I would welcome any kind of any kind of connection. I have a really easy LinkedIn. I'm Michael A. Meyer. So I got into LinkedIn early enough that I, I don't have to have a number at the end of my name. <laughs> um, so do I, because I have a, a name which is not that unique. Common. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's forgiven. Yes, yes, I can believe it. Yes. So it's handy like that. Um, but LinkedIn is probably the best place right, to, okay. to connect and to follow. Excellent. So uh, thank you for this time. It was super, uh, super uh, uh, inspiring for me. And sup- I would like to thank you again for having participated for sure. this first podcast because uh, um, I, I like the, the, the concept to have time. And, you know, uh, we are not limited by uh, something, especially in social media. It has to be so short, like a couple of seconds or a minute. Yeah. Now we have been talking for an hour and a half, you know. Right. And uh, I really uh, thank you for, for that. And uh you will be the first interview. So you have the number one. <laughs> Thank you. We'll, we'll have to make a TikTok, a 30-second version of this <laughs> also. So uh, you. see you very soon, uh, Michael, and yeah. wish you a nice uh, trip back in California now. Thank you. And thank you for the privilege to be on your podcast. Uh, I love what you're doing. I think this is fantastic. And most importantly, business is business and personal is personal. But I really like how you're creating a blend, a meld of that, of being able to see behind the, the, the business people. Uh, it's, it's helpful. And I, and I hope someone is, is ben, I hope someone benefits from this podcast. I hope this is useful and uh, someone listens to it and says, okay, I can do that. If this knucklehead can, can stumble through life and accomplish that, then my goodness, I can definitely do it. That's, that would be fantastic. Thank you very much, Michael. You reached the end of the Revenue Machine podcast. Give us five stars if you like it. That's the only way to be seen in the magma of podcasts. You can also forward this podcast to two other people you love. We Yield team is available to help rental operators who are frustrated by the data they have and the data they would like to have but also the one who wants to be guided along their review management transformation process. Contact us. Bye-bye.